Lucky Voice is a line of modern karaoke venues with a pop aesthetic, founded by Martha Lane Fox. Imagine pink fluorescent lights, disco balls and crushed velvet couches. Martha is at Lucky Voice headquarters when she gets a call. Uh, a woman on the other end said, um, it's number 10, the Prime Minister would like to speak to you. Martha's first thought is that this must be a friend playing a joke. And I honestly thought it was a hoax. None of my friends was winding me up because I'm political aspirations and they're probably just going to tease me. But the voice on the other end is Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister, the real one. And he's asked her to think about how to make sure as many people as possible in this country have access to technology and that government itself would serve those people well. The Prime Minister named her the UK's digital champion. In that role, Martha spent years learning about how communities throughout the UK use the internet and government services. One revelation was that the citizens who relied on government services the most... That constituent group of people had to use a really hideous digital experience. She used her unique position to push for change. She helped found a working group, the Government Digital Service, which launched Gov.uk. The idea behind it was to first build great government services tailored to the people who use them the most. Second, get people online and support them with digital literacy programs. I'm Damien Bradfield and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about influence, who has it, who wants it and how to use it for good. Today, we're going to speak to Martha Lane Fox, whose voice has influenced government and some of the world's most important companies. Martha was an early and very successful tech entrepreneur. She founded her first company, lastminute.com, in 1998. And since then, she's been on the boards of Chanel, Marks and & Spencers, and Twitter. She owns the karaoke company Lucky Voice, is a crossbench peer in Britain's House of Lords, has founded charities, and full disclosure is WeTransfer's board chair. So, Martha, thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thanks for asking me. Um, you're chair of many different boards, of course, the most interesting being WeTransfer. Of course. I personally am most interested in your life outside of WeTransfer. So I want to jump straight into the House of Lords. And for our friends in the US, um, they may not have any idea what the House of Lords is. In my opinion, it's probably the stuffiest branch of UK Parliament. <laughs> you're a crossbench peer and you're one of the few women, I believe, that are in the House of Lords. And the first woman was only allowed into the House of Lords in 1958. So relatively new fad in, in the history of British politics. Yeah, us women, we are a fad. Us women, aren't we? <laughs> I'd love to hear from you why you chose to be a part of it. Um, I... I'd done some policy work. You know, I'd worked in e-commerce and then I'd worked in the, on the edges of government and policy and I'd helped in the UK create something called the Government Digital Service and a website called gov.uk. And I'd realised that actually I was not very good at business. Shh, don't tell anyone on the WeTransfer board. But I um, was more in, in a way interested in the way that the next wave of digitisation was affecting institutions, society, broader context of what we were um, facing with this disruption. And so I'd helped um, create this incredible machine in the middle of government, gov.uk, an associated way that government was rethinking itself. And I thought, actually, you know, I'm really interested in trying to think about how to continue to use my voice, my small voice in policy and tech discussions. And I 
decided I'd apply, not thinking for one minute that I would get accepted at that point, thought they might say, come back in five years' time when you know something. But I think they must have been desperate that year. And it's kind of an incredible opportunity because the crossbenchers are independent. You're not affiliated to a political party. You're not just put in the House of Lords because you've given a big party donation. Not that everybody there is because of that, but there are still, in my opinion, too many that are. And you have to bring some kind of outside expertise or perspectives to the House of Lords. And so um, I thought I'd give it a whirl and was lucky. And what exactly is the House of Lords? You know, parliaments are a funny place, I think, pretty much universally across the world. I think that's true. House of Lords is particularly peculiar, but partly because it's it's been a very iterative chamber in many ways. So it's not ever really been structured in one way that makes particular sense. It's been kind of incrementally changed through the last a thousand years. Different ways of getting in there, as you say, women coming in, different kind of roles and responsibilities it takes on. But by and large, you know, it does three big things, I'd say. It continues to scrutinise government, ask questions of government, add helpful challenge, but also helpful critique to policies, to legislation. It also runs committees that look at lots of different strands of government to which the government are accountable. And crucially, it improves legislation. The massive legislative agenda that the government has, or every government has, goes through the House of Commons, the elected chamber, then comes to the House of Lords, where it will spend a much longer period of time being really reviewed and scrutinised. But it actually has far less power than people think. Everything we do is only a suggestion back to the primary chamber. Uh, All the amendments that the House of Lords gets through sent back to the House of Commons who then vote on them again. So it's it's a long process and it plays a part in our democracy, but it's not the only part and it's not the most dominant, I would argue. So, I mean, again, for our sort of US audience, every time the US Congress calls the tech CEO to testify, you can expect a string of extremely cringeworthy questions. Many elected officials have no idea of the understanding or any basic understanding of technology. Did you have a similar experience in how many other people were like you or were brought in to think like you within the House of Lords? I mean, less than there are now. Uh, I mean, partly when I first arrived, they were getting used to having Wi-Fi in the Houses of Parliament. And I think people thought I was basically there to fix the Wi-Fi. (laughs) If anything went wrong, they would always ask me how to make their Blackberries work. Yes, I did say Blackberry. What's the oldest age of the oldest member? Right now, I'm not sure. When I um, first joined in 2014, 14, I think it was. I think the oldest member was Baroness Trumpington. Perfect name. She was completely fantastic. She was at Bletchley Park, the place where the codes were broken in the Second World War. If anybody could kind of characterise what you imagine somebody called Trumpington might look like. And she was absolutely terrifying. Quite um, tall and commanded the space she occupies, to use a tech phrase. And to a young person like me, she was an object of wonder. But I think she stayed in the house till I was, she was about 96, I think. Um, and now there's more young people than there ever have been. I think if you ask any tech CEO to come and testify, they might be quite intimidated by some of the expertise that's been built up in the House of Lords. Is there the same sort of shouting back and forth? You said you had a little voice. Is there a big microphone? It's it's very different because you're there to represent a different constituent group. You know, you come to the House of Commons, you're representing a political party and you're representing a group of constituents and you are there to do that job primarily. In the House of Lords, you've got a different perspective. You're not in a political cycle, so people aren't trying to win political points in the same kind of way. And generally, people are there 
guess partly sometimes because of big P politics, but often because they do have a level of expertise in business or they're scientists or they're doctors. It creates a different atmosphere. It creates a much more respectful atmosphere in some way. You know, if, when Mary Walnut was alive, when I first joined the chamber, the woman that basically invented embryology and ability to fertilize embryos, she stood up to talk about issues around <laughs> certain areas of medicine people listen. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case if you have somebody in the Commons who's just got elected and decided to start talking about something, which again is an important part of things to do. So it does create a more respectful atmosphere. What is your opinion of career politicians? I mean, I think it's very different if you're an elected politician, because I think you can be an incredible career politician, representing an area that you may have been born in, know well, or may have lived in for a long time, get to know the constituents and perform an incredibly valuable function. So I think, you know, of course, I think it's very important to keep connected to the world. And the difference with the chamber that I sit in and the elected chamber is that you do go back into a constituency and talk to people and, you know, try and engage with issues that matter. So you do have the levers with which you are in situations other than just in that crazy building in Westminster. You know, I I do think, however, that some of the best politicians are people that have got some kind of experience of other sectors or areas. And I think it's a noble thing if you've had a career in medicine or business or other bit of the public sector to then just, or you know, doctors to then go and be an MP, because I think you must bring clearly a, a different set of expertise and skill. You could have chosen to put your time anywhere. Is this the best use of your time or should you actually be in Parliament? And the most incredible thing about the House of Lords in some ways is that it's got this kind of um, film between it and the real world. And people, a lot of people do have real jobs. You know, there's no question in my mind that I do a better job in the House of Lords because I sit on boards, because I have a small understanding of the corporate world and I started charities and all the other things that I've been lucky enough to do. While that is the case, I think I am relatively useful there and I think I, I feel as though I'm contributing. I think sometimes where it can be more problematic is when people were an expert in the 70s in something where they haven't actually engaged in the outside world for so long and perhaps it's not they're not really helping themselves or parliamentary processes but uh when i first came in i have you know, a streak of bright pink in my hair and i happened to walk with two sticks because historic injuries i remember people thinking it was quite the thing that i had a leopard skin walking stick and i thought wow well <laughs> you know there's going to be some things that are going to surprise you more than my leopard sting walking sticks about the things i think about technology but so far no one, i don't think i've caused any actual heart attacks so luckily <laughs> You had two walking sticks. That wasn't just to fit in because there were a lot of elderly people in the House of Lords. You'd had a car accident in 2004, which meant you'd broken something like 28 bones, had a stroke, nearly died, and were in hospital for something like two years. Is that right? It is. I was in Morocco with my partner, Chris. We were going to visit his best friend who was working on a movie in a location in Morocco. And we had a car crash. No one's fault. We just skidded on the road. And I didn't have my seatbelt on. That was my dumbness. I was in, we were in a kind of Jeep on a sandy road and I flew out and um, I was very, very, very lucky that Chris's friend had contacts in the film world and was working on a movie that could immediately deploy people to come and rescue me and help me. I was incredibly lucky that I frankly had the resources to get home flown in a special medical plane and now to have the resources and the help that it takes to live with a very very profound change in your physical state so but you were in hospital for two years in the uk then i was in hospital two years in the uk yeah okay. i um i had to learn to do everything again that's why 
such as walking, <laughs> walking, moving. You know, when you break that many bones, you're uh, completely—they call it actually a fixator. But they put this big metal cage over my body, basically, to pin my ten breaks in my pelvis back together. So I had to learn walking, moving, eating. That takes a long time. Quite apart from all the recovery stuff as well. Sounds horrendous and obviously is life-changing and would have altered everything but did it change the way that you think about work was it a moment that changed your opinion as to what it is that you wanted to do going forwards or were you already on this trajectory no i i don't think so i mean it is not a criticism of you at all but it is something that definitely people want to pin moments like this to some kind of revelation to some kind of big pivot to some moment oh well I realized that my life as a city banker was over and I'm going to go and live in the middle of Hawaii but I'm afraid that this not very good dot-com entrepreneur who was more interested in social justice actually was still a not very good dot-com entrepreneur who's quite interested in social justice and I think what it really just did was reinforce what I thought was important relied a huge amount on my friends and my family and you know, a big network of people that I love deeply and I'm lucky that they are around for me. And, you know, without them, I would unquestionably have been dead. Every single day someone came to see me. One of my friends wrote me a, a note, a postcard. Every single day I was in hospital. Wow. Friends came, they showed movies on the ceiling of the hospital. They brought their newborn babies. They told me they just got married. You, you have much better friends than me. <laughs> I was, I was, I have much better parties, perhaps. They knew they needed me back. Um, oh, that must be it. Shit. I had also just thought I was going to start a karaoke business. It might have been a completely enlightened self-interest from them. Ah, that's what it was. There we go. We found it. <laughs> that's what it was. But I think it made me, you no, know, it just made me more purposeful about my life. I think it didn't make me want to change. I felt as though, you know, I was 31 when it happened. I was 33, 34, well, actually more like 36, 37 when I was able to, get my brain a bit more back in gear. And I just thought, I do not want to waste time. I want to carry on and keep going and keep moving and just you know do as much as I can. When you give talks, you, you do walk on stage with walking sticks. Do you think that visual changes something? I don't know. I hate it. I mean, I, of course. I don't like it. I mean, I wish it wasn't the kind of device. I, so I feel in my head that I, and I pre all of this uh, last year, I did a lot of public speaking and I knew I was quite good at it. I, I'm i kind of a bit of a show off. And I, I've, heard, I've heard you're all right. I'm all right. I can, and I always remember my dad telling me once about Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, saying that if you stand up in Parliament and you've made three points, you've made two too many. So I always kind of had that in my head that actually you can only really ever say one thing and you've just got to say it in different ways and cleverly and funnily and, you know, go through that whole roller coaster and build it up, make it feel awful and then make people feel better. So I feel like I'm always trying to get over that and my sticks are, um, are, are kind of a, a distraction. So I think it probably makes people feel something towards you, but I don't know if it's something I want them to feel towards me. So maybe Zoom is your friend. Maybe. I mean, the funny thing, actually, and I've said this to powers that be in the House of Lords, one of the mechanisms that we have is question time where you can ask questions of the government. And we have a system pre um, the pandemic where you just have to stand up and kind of compete for attention and the house sort of self-regulates. And if they saw me come standing up a question around technology, people would give way and let me speak. But it's still an intimidating 
process that you have to kind of stand up and that was particularly I guess with a physical challenge about standing up and not falling into one of my noble friends's laps which might be construed in completely the wrong way I've definitely participated more actively in questions because we've been doing it remotely and you know I think it's kind of interesting about how some of these things have changed behaviors in uh, in spaces for people with vulnerabilities and I mean, if the House of Lords is a position of influence for the United Kingdom in terms of politics and policy, you also sit on the Twitter board, which I can imagine too is a huge opportunity to influence. You were a member of the Twitter board back in April 2016, and this is pretty much the thick of the election season in the US. Trump and Hillary campaigns in full swing, but also fake news and Twitter in the news constantly, if anybody can think think that far back. What made you agree to join the board of Twitter? Um, you know, it felt to me like a massive, massive opportunity to join the board of Twitter. And I used the platform enormously myself. That was the first reason I really did love the product. I know it has flaws. I'm not an insane person. I built up networks that I would never have been able to have by using Twitter effectively when I first joined the site in 2009. And I had seen the benefit for me personally, and that was a hugely important piece of my thinking. I also felt very strongly that, you know, I've worked my whole life in tech. I'd never been in Silicon Valley. I'm not an insider in any kind of way, but it was really an opportunity on a personal level to get inside, you know, right at the heart of so many interesting discussions and to try and bring a European perspective to those. I remember the first board meeting, um, and I think it has actually shifted a bit now, but being completely and totally amazed the extraordinary cultural difference around freedom of expression and freedom of speech. And I do think actually in the last five years, the company and actually probably the country has moved a little bit. But when I got there, I was like, wow, we in Europe really do believe there is a boundary to free speech. And you in the US really do not. I mean, somewhat of a simplification. And I thought, whoa, okay. And it it was as though the scales fell from my eyes. And I thought, well, it's still interesting to have someone who represents a bit of a different perspective on that on the board and to try and talk about some of the, the pitfalls and the hazards and the consequences of some of these decisions. So it was a combination of loving the product myself, hoping to be able to add a um, European perspective, feeling totally intimidated and completely total imposter syndrome when I walked into the room, but just thinking, you know, just if you're there, try and make the most of it. So you've also been on the Marks and Spencers board, which again, for our US listener, how would you describe Marks and Spencers? Institution? Yeah, it's like an institution. I mean, that's often described as a British national treasure like the NHS, Marks and Spencer. It's a, a retailer. It really is a stalwart of the British high street and was the first shop. It's got a kind of incredible origin story because Mr. Marks and Mr. Spencer a long time ago set up a stall and they were one of the first stalls back in the kind of early 20th century, I guess, to let women touch the products that they were selling. It wasn't behind a on a glass box or kind of being given to you by an assistant. You were able to actually go and touch them yourself. So they really did try to democratise retail. And I think there's something that's really deep in British culture about that sense of, you know, it's our M&S and we love the knickers and we love the bras and we love the strawberries. And uh, I tell you what, I couldn't have picked two boards to have joined where people had stronger opinions. I mean, it would just be an impossibility. Most people thought I was nuts for going on the board of Twitter and most people thought I was nuts for going on the board of Marks and Spencer. And if they didn't think I was nuts, then they definitely wanted to tell me about how the lingerie section had changed over the last 30 years and the demise of a particular kind of bikini brief or whatever it was. So 
unfortunately, <laughs> not enough women on the Marks and Spencer board. And I do remember looking around thinking, Jesus Christ, here's a man who's running lingerie presenting to a board of with one other woman on it about the knickers and the bras for the next season and thought, save me. So I don't know very many that have your experience that also have your sense of humour or your level of empathy or... Um, I hope that my partner, Chris, is listening to this. I have a sense of humour. <laughs> Do you hear that? <laughs> no, but so those, are, those are credentials that I think, you know, you, you underestimate that um, is not perhaps the stuffy image you might have of somebody who is either in the House of Lords or the chair of a board. And I think that's one of the biggest assets that you have and certainly one of the reasons that we were very interested in having you join our board. Thank you. I mean, I genuinely increasingly think that perhaps my only uh, real skill is showing that you don't really have to be in a box. I think one of the questions that sometimes makes me feel most anxious is when people say, so what do you do now? And I think I don't know how to answer that question without sounding like a bit of a twat, to be honest. I could kind of line out all these things I do and I don't actually do anything because I don't really run anything. And I sort of get quite panicked by it. And I think, no, just, you know, screw that. Actually, doesn't matter. I'm a generalist. I really enjoy the fact that I can skip between Parliament, Select Committee, the We Transfer Board, a charity, Chancellor of the Open University. And, that, and if you can channel that and not feel like you have to be defined by what might be more traditional, then it can be a strength. So I hope I can provide some inspiration that you can be you know, difficult to put in a box is not always a bad thing. And certainly you were very different from other board members we've had that as soon as you came in, you wanted to speak to the people. So you wanted to sit down and talk to different teams and hear how they were doing. And again, just that level of empathy, I think, is really quite unique. I think maybe one thing about starting your own company when you are so young, 25, we started lastminute.com. For those who don't know, lastminute.com, it started off as a travels deals website in 1998 and then went on to do gifts and entertainment and, and later was traded on the London Stock Exchange. Yes, I've never worked in a big company, really. Started in a tiny consulting company that was a startup. That was Spectrum. There was no distance between me and the boss. And then uh, that was where I met my then business partner, Brent. And we started a company and you you know everybody because you hire them all. And I've never had another job, really. So it's always been just my natural default to, of course, talk to the people that are doing the work and not get too far away from it, I hope, because you you don't lose that, I think, when you've you've been the person starting things. You're very passionate about responsible technology. Can you explain what that is? So I, back in 2015, was asked to do this uh, lecture on national television in the UK. And I thought, well, what am I going to say? I've got no idea. The BBC gets 45 minutes of free television and some muppet like me has to kind of come up with all this content. And I wrote this speech and I thought, this is brilliant. This is kind of romp through my career in technology. Everyone's going to love it. And I sat down with some people uh, who I've worked with and I, I did my performance and they were like, looked at me and they said, uh, it's okay. Anyway. Could do better, like, Martha. Do better, exactly. <laughs> anyway, they helped me make it better. And one of the reasons they made it better was because I came up with this idea of an organisation called Dot Everyone that would represent the views of uh, the everyone in the dot-com world um, and should be an institution that I thought the government should set up. But surprise, surprise, the government didn't want to set up. So I had an attempt at it. And we did really try to build a movement around responsible technology. And we were quite early into talking about the consequences of tech. Yes. You know, I'm not a techno-utopian. I don't believe the world will be solved with knots and zeros and ones. But I do still believe in the incredible power of innovation. And I've had, you know, my own career has been so much more profound, I think, because of understanding a little bit about technology. So it's not, it was never meant to be a kind of bashing of the technology world, but it was meant for companies to think about the consequences and to have the tools to think about the consequences. So it was a big part of uh, what I was working on for quite some period of time. 
we stopped because sometimes I think it's a good idea to stop charities, especially when it's really hard to raise money. And I think we had to be realistic and move to a place where other organisations could take our tools and our work and, and carry on. So we morphed into two bigger organisations that were much more about delivery than we had been much more about kind of strategy and influencing, to use the word that you use. But what was nice, I think, in even in the ending of Dot Everyone was that it didn't just disappear. All the learnings and everything that you built up was basically distributed and, and shared amongst other organisations. It feels like um, the sort of baton was passed on to somebody else, which doesn't always happen in tech. But what would you say is the biggest in the biggest achievement of Dot Everyone or the biggest learning that you took out of it? The first achievement was just doing it and getting it off the ground and building it for five years. And, you know, when we started, it, I was like, what are you talking about responsible technology? And then suddenly the shine came off tech very quickly. Cambridge Analytica uh, was one of the prompts, but also just massive um, anxieties about the spread of corporate America across Europe, all the different levers that people will be aware of. And I am proud that we were really at the forefront of that conversation and people in government listened to it and people in other organisations listen to it. So that's harder to measure. But the second part is, is is easier. And that is, as you say, the tools that we built. You know, we built a tool for companies to use to work out whether they were building products of consequence and, you know, to see around corners about what they were releasing on the world. And that is being used and companies are using it now. And I'm pleased that that was the case. How do you feel the world of technology has changed in the time that you've been in it? Because 200 million years. Um, <laughs> I was trying to find a way of saying that really politely, but yes, you've been in it a long time. That's true. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's unrecognisable. I mean, when I started off at Spectrum, the consulting company in 1994, my first project was called What is the Internet, right? And we were talking to BT about what the internet was. I mean, arguably, they could still have the same project done for them right now. But it was just extraordinary convincing to media and telecoms companies that the internet was going to be a thing and so that you know to have started there and then to have had the incredible experience of starting with the earliest e-commerce companies everyone thought we were completely insane for leaving our jobs to start a website where you would sell things well, no one was going to buy anything on the internet you're insane no one's going to put their credit card details in the internet so to have had that and then to now have seen the kind of massive dominance of social media particularly facebook and then pandemic tech, you know, Amazon basically owning our public infrastructure. I mean, it just feels like these phases have been extraordinary. But the constant in all of this is, is twofold. Firstly, incredible innovation and unbelievable brains and smarts. I mean, in my opinion, still not thinking enough necessarily about some of the right challenges, but still incredible brains and innovation. Unbelievable, breathtaking. But then on the flip side of that, we still have our institutions, back to where we started, our legislators that need to catch up with this very quickly. You know, if it was bad in 1994 about how to encourage our national carrier BT to think about the internet and regulate it, my God, it's terrible now. And if you look at the online harms bill that took a long time to come to Parliament, is only now emerging in the UK. That's just one small parochial example of trying to attack some of these issues. If you look at what's happening in the US with antitrust and some of the ways that they've copied some of the European regulation. You know, we need to have better legislation around this Wild West. And I have been surprised at the slow pace of the institutional understanding of, of digitization. I can, I can vividly remember people barking at the idea that you would buy a domain, domain name for £1,000 or £10,000 or something because it wasn't real. It's not like a shop, is it? It's stupid. 
to the conversation we're having today around NFTs and digital real estate and museums that are being created you know, on ecosystems where people are hosting their digital art and paying a million pounds. What do you make of this space? Is it just deja vu? Uh, no, I think it is different because there are still incredible fundamental shifts. You know, if I was representing Jack Dorsey, um, the Twitter clearly, you know, he would say, underestimate where we're at with all of this at your peril. You know, he is absolutely in the camp of blockchain technologies, crypto technologies being a fundamental seismic shift in the world that we haven't begun to understand. And all this kind of fluff around the top of it is just as people begin to understand it, not because the absolute trends aren't, you know, going to be incredibly important over a 10-year view. So, you know, I think both things can be true. You can sort of have the fluff and the noise on the one level and you can have the shifts in the sand at the same time. And I just wonder whether this is a state that we're now going to have to be permanently living in, this kind of ambivalence, this uncertainty, not really sure about whether things are assets, not assets, whether they are fundamental shifts and trends. It gets harder and harder to unpick. And those are the things that interest me, I think, about how you work out what is meaningful. So final question. You have a ton of influence because you're obviously the chairman of the board of the amazing WeTransfer company. Mm -hmm. You are on the board of Twitter. You are on the board of Chanel. You own a karaoke bar when people are intoxicated. And you are in the House of Lords. Of all the power that you wield, <laughs> if there was one thing that you would wish for in the world of technology, what would it be? I mean, more diverse voices, 100%. More people who both don't look like me and you, but also have got very different experiences and are given the opportunity to create, to have power, you know, starting companies, to be giving out money, all of the things. You know, I still, you know, that is, when you ask me about my 200 million years in technology, Brent and I were asked in our first and pretty much only venture capital meeting, one question, and it was directed at Brent, and it was what happens if she gets pregnant. And you know, that was 1997. So it was quite, uh, as we've established, 200 million years ago. But I fear that it's not moved on enough. I mean, I don't think you'd get away with that question quite. But I think the thing is that the question is mentioned in the sidebar, and it's not mentioned in the sunlight. And I have no doubt today that because there are so few female entrepreneurs, there are so few models of showing what's possible from a diverse perspective that we don't build as many good products, and we don't have as much uh, capacity as humanity yet to solve the problems that we need to. Simple. No great big revelation there, but I, there is still an enormous, enormous amount of work to do to shift power away from where it has traditionally been held. Amen. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure as always. And that concludes our episode for today. A massive thank you to Martha for challenging me to do better on this podcast and in my work life. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No. Sound engineering is by Mark Bush and our creative producer is Linda Mertens. A massive thank you to Center Sound in Amsterdam for helping us pull the show together. You can find Influence anywhere, to be honest, on the entire internet. Just search it up. If you're enjoying the show, please follow us, leave a review, whatever you have to say on a podcast once it's finishing. And most importantly, if you think there are people that we should interview, please tweet me at DJ Bradfield, or you can even email me at damien at wetransfer.com. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time. <laughs>